Good morning. Welcome back to our series in the book of Daniel. As was just read for us, we're in Daniel chapter 11 this morning. And as we noted last week, in getting into chapter 10, chapters 10, 11, and 12, unlike the previous nine chapters of the book of Daniel, actually give us one coherent story, one long telling of an event. The event, the final vision of the prophet Daniel. And so last week we saw what happened to Daniel before he had the vision, what happened to him during the vision, and what happened to him immediately after the vision. But in chapter 10, Daniel told us little at all about the vision itself. In fact, he only made a comment of a couple of words, that the vision he saw concerned a great conflict. This morning we look at chapter 11, that great conflict. And I mentioned last week how Daniel regularly is disturbed by his visions. How each time he has one, something takes place where he's unsettled or he's laid up some days sick. We saw last week how he's completely laid out, unconscious, has to be brought to by an angelic figure. And what we saw was that Daniel, and this effect on him, is in proportion to the clarity of the vision. The clearer the vision the more of an effect it has on Daniel. And so he had no strength left in him after seeing this vision. What I want us to see this morning is the nature of the conflict that Daniel saw. And I want us to see the faithfulness of God to him and through that conflict. And I have to admit, this is a pretty standard message for the book of Daniel. Each time we've gotten up here to teach on Daniel, one of the things that we've noted is how God is a God not just of the present, but of the future. That he's orchestrating events, that he, he is in charge of the rise and the fall of kingdoms. And so this, a pretty standard uh, message for the book of Daniel, but I want to take a look at it in a slightly different way. As we consider Daniel 11, I want us to ask questions of a more existential and a spiritual nature. I want us to think about the truths communicated in here, and not just at a surface level, but I want us to try and anchor them deep in our hearts. You see, in order to do that, we are going to have to avoid the trap of getting lost in the historical weeds. Because while we could walk through verses 2 through 35 of this text, verse by verse, showing their historical correspondence, showing what took place within a hundred years of Daniel's lifetime and how it matches nearly exactly with this text. I don't think that that's how God intends it to be preached. So this morning, I want to think about the questions that the text prompts. So we'll get a brief historical overview, but we're not going to go as deep as one could in the history. And by the way, if you want to know, how deep you can go, just to ask me afterwards. I can tell you how long I spent in history books preparing this message. And then after that, we're going to consider some of the meanings of fulfilled prophecy for us today. What does it mean that what Daniel saw actually happened? So let's pray, and then we will jump into our text. Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this text, Father, we see your kingdom triumph. We see your will being carried out. We see how you in your power and your knowledge fix 
all things in their proper times and proper places. This is to say that we see in this text that you are God. And Father, I ask that you use your word and your spirit this morning to correct us, to reprove us, to stoke within us the flames of faith that we might trust you. The God who turns hearts of kings like one channels a stream and yet is our father. Having decided before the foundations of the world to adopt us in to your family through your son, Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his holy and precious name. Amen. All right, as we get into this text this morning, we have to remember where we left off in Daniel chapter 10. We have to remember that this vision knocked the wind out of him, that it leveled him. It completely destabilized him. And here is what he saw that did that. In verse 2, he saw the continuation of the Persian Empire. We're told that four kings would arise after King Cyrus, whom Daniel knew. But in fact, the empire would actually have more than four kings. You see, it would have 12 monarchs follow after Cyrus, but it would have four that raise it from increasing points of glory to its height and peak. And then each successive king, after the fourth king, known as Xerxes I, the strongest and wealthiest, each successive king after him would bring more and more weakness to the empire. By the way, for those of you who are military historian fans out there, Xerxes I is the king who faithfully met King Leonidas at the hot gates in the Battle of Thermopylae. He and his 300 Spartans would become famous for that battle. Xerxes I as well, just another point of connection, is probably the King Ashuerus, the king that marries Esther in the biblical book carrying her name. His son would be Artaxerxes, and he would rule primarily as an administrative king, not an empire builder like his four predecessors. The king following Artaxerxes would only live for 45 days. The king following that king would pass barely the six-month mark before he was assassinated. His successor, though, would reign for 19 years over a period of decadence and decay, at which point, smelling blood in the Persian waters, the city-states which the Persians had conquered would rise up and start rebellions. And so that king would pass his kingdom on and pass it on again as they tried to consolidate the empire, but eventually would come a king who had to be concerned with a Greek leader named Philip. He had not forgotten the Greeks' shared history of the cruelty of Xerxes, and so he trained his son, whom we meet in this text, to take over the Greek empire, his son Alexander III, who we know as Alexander the Great. And so by the time that we reach Alexander, we realize a couple of things about this sort of literature, a couple of things about Daniel's vision. First, we see that Daniel regularly fast-forwards through vast swaths of history. He fast-forwards and then stops and plays back slowly and then speeds up again. He shifts how much detail he's giving at different points. And it's very important to realize why he's doing this. Daniel, in this vision, and in his recording of it, is not recording world history or Western civilization's history. 
fundamentally, he is recording covenantal history. And so Daniel speeds up until he reaches a point where the rulers of the world come in contact with God's people, at which point he slows down and gives us more detail. And once they pass away from that scene, he speeds up again. The entire point is to tell us of how God is being faithful to his people and how these nations rage against God and his people. And so we see after just four kings of Persia, the rise of Alexander the Great, which is more years than Daniel leads on down the line. And so when we turn to Alexander the Great, we realize that Daniel is actually not as concerned with the great monarchs if they don't have much contact. And so later in the text, we will meet again Antiochus IV, who gets 14 total verses. Alexander the Great, though, is one of the most famous generals and rulers in all of world history. And yet he gets but two verses here in Daniel. And what do those two verses tell us about him? That a mighty king shall arise who will rule with a great dominion and do as he wills. By the time Daniel has this vision, he would have become familiar with this Greek. He has seen him in Daniel chapter 2 when he encountered Alexander's empire in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar as the sturdy bronze midsection of an empire-stacking statue. And then he encountered him again in Daniel chapter 7, when he had a vision of a winged leopard with four heads, which was quick and ferocious, a terrifying beast. And he encountered again in Daniel chapter 8, as the goat with a solitary horn, which violently massacred the Medio-Persian ram. We've covered each of these in our series thus far. And Daniel had these encounters before Alexander was even born of seeing Alexander's empire. So Daniel would not be surprised either then to see this mighty king's ultimate demise. As he saw in Daniel chapter 8, he saw the solitary horn break. So here he sees the kingdom fall quickly. And the text describes the kingdom not going to Alexander's posterity, nor following in the authority structure of Alexander's organization. Rather, it is given to someone else. It is given to four generals, not his son or his closest advisor. These four generals compete in battle against each other for reign and control over Alexander's empire. But again, we're looking at covenantal history. And so the text zooms in not on four, but on two. The two who will be called the king of the north and the king of the south. Verses 5 through 20 concern themselves with these two kings. And we have to understand these aren't actually two kings alone, but they're labels, not individuals. Thus, as one king rises in an empire and falls, so the next to take his place still bears the title king of the south. And the text tells us how they fought for dominance, but that that dominance grew from more than just a military rivalry, but actually turned into a blood feud. In Daniel 11, verses 6 through 8, we read the following. After some years, they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he, his arm, shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her root, one shall arise in his place. 
He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. You see, what happens here is Daniel zooms in on two of the generals. The generals in the north called the Seleucids. They take over a land close to what we would think of as Syria. And the general in the south called Ptolemy which for those of you taking notes is spelled with a silent P at the beginning, so keep that in mind. Ptolemy would reign over Egypt. And after years of military rivalry, they decided enough is enough. We will settle this with an alliance. And so Ptolemy gave his daughter to one of the princes of the Seleucids to marry. And the child which they would have would become the mutual king to reunite them as Alexander once did. But history records that did not go as well. To summarize several commentators, after many years of hostility between these two kingdoms, they desired to promote a lasting peace and become allies. To seal their alliance, Ptolemy gave his daughter Bernice in marriage to the Seleucid prince. Their son would become heir to a mutual throne. This marriage was accompanied by a vast celebration as Bernice entered the Seleucid capital in Antioch. And the Seleucid prince, Antiochus II, put his first wife, Laodice, away sent her away with her son to Ephesus in Asia Minor. But Bernice did not retain her power as king or as queen. Antiochus II grew tired of her after the heir son was born. So he went to Ephesus to live with Laodice, his first wife, and he was poisoned by her to ensure that her children would have the right to the throne of Syria. Bernice was then handed over to her, and Bernice and her infant son were murdered thus ending the supposed peace between the two empires. Ptolemy III, her brother, heard of this. Note that the text says a branch from the same root. Her brother hears of this, is greatly angered, and attacks the Seleucid realm by land and by sea, plundering their kingdom and carrying the spoils back to Egypt. These two kingdoms, then, we see in verses 10 through 19, and recorded in history, will duke it out over this land because of this blood feud. No forgiveness for this. There's so much that we could jump into here. But one of the things I want us to see is these small little details that would have to go into something like that. For Daniel to see them ahead of time. How would Daniel even know? How would anybody be able to predict that the king of the south, Ptolemy, would even have a daughter to give away in marriage. And yet years before, through God's vision, Daniel is seeing these things. In verses 21 through 35, then, we turn our attention to who scholars believe is Antiochus IV, called Epiphanes. You may remember him. We have met him in Daniel chapter 8. Antiochus comes to power in the Syrian Empire, so he is of the Seleucid realm. Thus, he assumes the label king of the north until verse 35 in our text. And concerning Antiochus, we see see several details are listed. In verse 21, he is a contemptible person. We see that he is one whom majesty was not given, and he will take the throne without warning by flatteries, using false alliances and deceit to gain his advantage. See that in 21 through 23. Which is interesting to note, I said this when we 
looked at Daniel 8 too, Antiochus IV was not in line for the throne, but he became the Seleucid king through political intrigue and assassination. We see in verse 22 that he will sweep away many, including the prince of the covenant, which refers to Antiochus IV's murder of the Jewish high priest, Onus III. In verses 25 through 30, then, we have recorded war crimes and military campaigns that Antiochus would undertake. In verses 30 through 35, we see how they refer to how he would position himself against the people of God. This is the reason why Antiochus gets so much airtime in Daniel's vision. Because he would set himself up against God's people. Antiochus IV was a pretty minor world ruler at the time. Most contemporary historians only are concerned with a mere sentence of him before passing on to focus on the West where the Roman Republic was beginning to rise out of the Italian city-states. Again, one third and final time to point this out, the focus of it here is because of covenantal history. Daniel, in this vision, seems concerned with how God works with and around his people throughout human history. And so what are these events that we see Antiochus doing with, the, with Jerusalem and God's people? Well, first, in an attempt to enforce Greek culture, Antiochus changed the laws in Jerusalem. This is what verse 28 references, that his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will in return to his own land. Verses 29 through 30 then refer to a rather embarrassing story for Antiochus in which he attempted to invade Egypt and was thwarted by the Romans. Note that the Hebrew word kitten would point to the Roman territory. And so upset, Antiochus returning back home passes through Jerusalem and unleashes his fury upon them. He takes action against the Holy Covenant. And verses 31 through 35 refer to how he offered bribes to Jews to forsake their God and to worship Zeus. How if they refused, he would beat them and imprison them and kill them. And how he set up an altar to Zeus above the altar of God, which is what the text refers to when it, call, when it speaks of the abomination that makes desolate in verse 31. You see, all this history tells us that the religious and military response of the Maccabean revolt comes next. In verses 34 through 35, that a group of Jews had had enough of Antiochus, they rose up against him. For all these things, we could paint bigger pictures with more detailed dives into history. But something interesting takes place which draws our attention as Daniel shifts his vision subtly. And he shifts to the end times and to the Antichrist in verses 36 through 45. It's important as we read this to think about the fact that this is originally a vision, that Daniel is seeing this. And so it might be helpful to think of how Daniel or how this vision is playing detailed with facts but loose with time. And so we could say that the vision begins to Fast forward here, and as it does, it does so so quickly and over such a distance of time that the vision of Antiochus IV begins to blur, not merely into the, uh, another historical figure, but capturing the character of kings and rulers who would raise themselves up and position themselves against God. And so the king of the north, 
no longer, in verse 36, is the historical Antiochus Epiphanes, but somebody we might call the little a Antichrist. And we should note that in those verses, it records no specific events. This is a, this is a key and a hint about what's taking place here. However, it stops and slows down again, and it focuses in. And it talks about at the end of the, or at the time of the end, when the capital A Antichrist will come. And in this final vision, or in this, the final verses of the battle of the Antichrist, the new king of the north, we see a few things. We see that this king of the north will have victory over the king of the south. That he will war against the glorious land of Jerusalem. That he will spare Edom, Moab, and the Amorites. Note that those are historically enemies of God's people. And so we draw the conclusion that the enemies of God's people are friends to this king of the north. We see that he will become super rich, that he will pitch a battle tent, and that he will come to an end with none to help him. That is as brief as I am willing to be in the historical overview. There's so much that we could jump into here. But I think what God intends for us to do when we look at Daniel 11 is actually to focus in on what fulfilled prophecy means for us. You see, Daniel, when he saw this vision, and for sermons and studies done by those who would read the text of Daniel in between his recording of this vision and it coming to pass, they wouldn't have any of this historical data to rely upon. But they knew the prophecy. And they saw pieces of it fulfilled here and there at a time. And so what does fulfilled prophecy mean for us? Well, I think we can draw three things out of it. And we'll focus on these three for the rest of our time here. We can see that God is sovereign. We can see that God will win no matter how things look like they are going. That victory is assured. And finally, we can see that our job in the midst of all of this craziness is simply this, faithfulness. I stated at the beginning that I wanted to think about these things at a more spiritual and existential level, meaning having to do with our real experience, our day-to-day. You see, Daniel seems to understand each of these points, and yet he is completely destabilized by this vision. He has encountered visions before and seen them fulfilled. He knows that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that kingdoms only rise and fall at God's will, and yet Daniel is knocked out by this particular vision. As well, if you have been with us, then you have seen these points before. And so it's good to focus on them in such a way in which we wind them deeper into our hearts. Also, I want to focus on these three things because if you're a Christian in here, There's a sense that you most likely affirm the truth of every single one of these and yet have a very difficult struggle living in life then. And I want to focus on these three things because if you're not a Christian here, then I get the amazing opportunity to tell you and to explain to you the very critical meta point of this text for the Christians that we call faith. So let's consider each of these things in turn. God is sovereign. What does that mean? Well, it simply means this, that God is all-powerful. And because he's all-powerful, he is also all-knowing and all-present. Those three things are a package deal. 
And given these three attributes, we can say that God has the power to direct and orchestrate history to his ends, whatever they may be. Daniel 11 is a revelation that he does just that. That several hundred years ahead of time, God revealed to Daniel exactly how things were going to take place, how the kings were going to rise up, where they would be from, how they would come to their thrones, and when and how they would fall. How he would provoke spirits to alliance, how he would provoke others to war, and how he would stand in the background amongst political intrigues and throne changes. To say God is sovereign, then, is to say fundamentally that he controls every minute of human history. That nothing that takes place falls outside of his sovereign hand. Even the long succession of minutes in which Antiochus and Antiochus-like rulers persecute God's people, God's church. You see, this truth is given to us for the purpose of hope. Yet, like Daniel, we often wrestle with this information. And we need to learn it in the core of who we are. And we need to grow to love this truth. In philosophy, there is an, a fancy word, epistemology. It means how we know what we know. And how we come to know those things. It's a super interesting study. And quite frankly, it's one of our biggest problems in the church. You see, we have forgotten how we come to know things. We paper over this memory loss, by the way, with simple aphorisms and sayings, which are at best overly simplistic, and at worst, just flat out wrong. I mean, you can think of the common notion, and this is just one example, of someone struggling with a piece of information that they affirm is true, and in evangelical churches, all the time we say things like, oh, that person has head knowledge, but they need to get it into their heart. Oh, yes, yeah, she, she knows it, but she has to move that information six inches south to really know it. Not only does such things denigrate the intellect and the mind which God gave each of us, but that idea would be completely foreign to the biblical authors. You see, prior to the modern world, nobody ever thought of the head and the intellect and the heart and the emotions as separate things. The Bible looks at the human being and says, who you are fundamentally is your heart, which is where your thoughts, your ideas, as well as your emotions and your will and your desires all sit in the core of your being. The Bible speaks of all of these things being contained in who you are in your heart. But we are so often seduced by two different faulty epistemologies, two different false ways of coming to know things. One is hyper-rationalistic, and we think only about information. And so we get churches where we, we have caricatures of the cold doctrinaire Christianity that just wants scientific evidence and information in order to understand everything, and has no room for people's struggles. And so we might think of such a poor way of looking at things and ask difficult questions about us and our culture. Like how many in such churches and how many who view knowledge that way have friends that would identify as LGBTQ? How many of you can imagine what it would be like for a friend who does to walk into a church of cold doctrinaires? How awkward, potentially difficult, and even possibly scary such a thing would be. 
But the other, on the other hand, the other way of falsely knowing something is the pure emotionalistic. We give untrammeled authority to our emotions. If it doesn't feel right to me, if I can't emotionally grapple with it and respond to it, then it must be wrong. Well, this is quite simply just the way to squishy theological convictions. There are important doctrinal truths which we must hold firm in the core of who we are, even while we have soft edges, such that those who encounter us don't find themselves graded against us as cold doctrinaires, but we must indeed hold the doctrine true. To use the same example, we must understand that homosexual sex and marriage is not merely a lifestyle difference. The scriptures speak of it as a heresy because sex and marriage were designed by God for actual experiences that tell us of who he is and what his son and his son's love for us is like. As such, a homosexual union lies about the very nature and character of our God. That is what heresy is. You know, if you take one of those positions, you might feel the need to value love over truth or truth over love. But I tell you the truth, if you pit one against the other, at the end, you will find you did neither well. You will find you either held loosely to the truth, and it turns out you are not actually loving to your LGBTQ friends. Or you held, you did not hold love strong enough. And you couldn't speak to them in kindness, understanding their struggle. Understanding how they are catechized in the false ideologies of our world. Truth and love are never pitted against each other in Scripture. You have no need to reconcile them because they are friends and allies. The Bible gives us an epistemology different than the hyper-rationalistic and the overly emotionalistic. It tells us that we will come to know things when the authority of the Scripture gives us information which we encounter as real and true through our experience. In other words, the Bible gives us information, tells us truth, tells us doctrine about God and about ourselves. But it does not expect that we will immediately assimilate this into the way in which we think and the way in which we move in this world. Rather, the Bible expects that experience will have to take that information and drill it deep into you until it becomes known. Until it becomes knowledge which you live every day with, until it becomes second nature. This might seem complex because I'm using a big philosophical word, but let me show you how simple this is. If you are a Christian in here, God loves you as a father does. I bet every man in this room who affirms that they are a Christian believes the truth of that statement, and yet I bet every father in this room realizes how shallow they understood that to be the day they interacted with their child for the first time. Maybe it was the feeling of the kicks on their wife's belly, or maybe it was holding him the day he was born. And the experience 
experience and meditating on that experience, recounting that memory again and again, drilled in what a father's love is like. And so you come to know, oh, this, this is how God loves me. But here's how knowledge works, and this is why it's important not to pit the heart against the mind, because it doesn't end there. You realize, oh, this is how God loves me, and then you realize a subsequent and important follow-up. No, this isn't. My love for this person is so much more shallow than God's love for me. And so what does that turn into? All of a sudden, you realize how deep your love must go, how you must drill down against your own selfishness and desires in order to root the love of your children further into your heart. We call that transformation. As through scripture and through prayer, you twist that deeper. And you come to know it that way. And so this likely prompts for you then prayers asking for God to help make you a better father. And reflections on how days went and where you could have loved your children better. And so information turns to knowledge, and knowledge through experience becomes transformation. Let me give you a second example, but we'll flip it. We'll use the opposite condition. You see, we Christians await eagerly with anticipation the return of Jesus. There's just one problem with that. We don't. We don't do that. We're bad at it. We have an entire season called Advent dedicated to it. At this church in particular, we decided we were going to focus on an Advent devotional. You want to know who forgot to announce the Advent devotional the first December, first Sunday in December? He has two thumbs and is staring, standing right up at the front of the room. You want to know who did not lead his family each day of Advent through that Advent devotional? I am bad at this. Part of that might be because I haven't taken the information that Jesus is coming back and that I don't know when and drilled it into my heart. But you know who might have? What about the couple who desires kids? And yet test after test, month after month, with heavy hearts, they wait on the Lord. Such couples are often overlooked in the hustle and bustle of church life. And yet, it is possible that no one really knows the struggle of waiting like them. If leveraged right, the arduous waiting of childlessness can teach us about the faithfulness of God in ways in which we cannot begin to imagine. Especially when those in our world around us run to science and technology to save them from childlessness. But the couple who waits on the Lord is faithful to let him fulfill that. I apologize for my philosophical digression. Let me regress back to our point about God's sovereignty. Many of us need to encounter the sovereignty of God in an experiential way in order to really know it. It sits on our minds just on the surface. Something we affirm but we do not experience and therefore we do not know. And so what we need to do, what I would encourage you to do, 
is to look at the story of your life, to recount it to yourself, to your closest friends, to your family, to reflect on how God orchestrated events using incalculable moving pieces of other people's lives in order to get you right where you needed to be to encounter his son. You see, we need to meet the risen Jesus Christ in his word, in his people, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to meet him, we need to know him, and we need to come and trust him. And anybody in here who considers them a Christian has a story about how that happened, and my guess is it didn't happen in a box. My guess is it didn't happen while you were alone, and my guess it happened through someone else. But how did God get that person there? And if you trace your story back far enough, maybe you've shared the gospel with somebody else. And have you ever even considered the miracle that you came to being? My grandfather was a pilot. Flew in three different wars. Shot down twice. One bullet nine inches to the left, and Tyler Hurst never exists. And yet here I stand. And God controlled every moving piece, made sure every screw on his plane was tight, made sure he landed safely when he ejected out of his cockpit, made sure all of those things just to get me where I am today. And more importantly, to put me in front of the right people at the right time that I would hear the message of his son. Each of us has a story like that. And each of us, if we took time, looked back at our lives, we would see the craftsman-like touch of our God, of our Father, shaping us into the image of his true Son, Jesus. We see this in history. We see this in the scriptures. We see it in our own lives. We see this in Daniel 11. When Daniel encounters a vision which reminds him of God's sovereignty, which twists it deeper into his life, he is laid out. And so since I have just encouraged you to think about God's sovereignty in your lives, I should give you this warning. God's sovereignty takes a lot. It's heavy. And yet in God's sovereignty, we see the gospel at work. In Daniel 11, the king of the north, we see, shall come to his end with none to help him. It is fitting that the Bible never names this king of the north, but rather just gives him a moniker which can be slapped on successive kings. Because when we look through the lens of history, we might miss that this isn't just a bunch of miniature conflicts, but this is one big, great conflict. And God has sovereign control over all of it. Which is why Daniel 10, when the vision be, before the vision began, we encounter the words, and the word, the vision, was true. The New Testament tells us of God's victory in his son, our Savior Jesus. It says in Revelation 17, 14, They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those who are called and chosen and faithful. 
And so what we see after acknowledging God's sovereignty is we see that God wins. But here we find another place where we struggle to believe. Again, we say that we do, but how many of us live our lives as if Jesus has conquered, as if the grave is empty, and as if he will come back and no king can stand before him? How many of us live like God already knows the outcome and the working of all things that will move us closer to Christ's final victory? This, too, is a place where I struggle. And I know it is a place where I need to work to move my mere affirmation into true knowledge. And I want to acknowledge to a certain extent there is a completely legitimate response to struggling with understanding that God will win in the end. You see, after all, Daniel and many of his friends will die in exile. They do not see the ultimate victory. They will not see the finished temple. They will not see the Messiah for whom they await Come in glory in this life. So God wins, but for them, it's a life away from home. A life of trial and temptation. A life of pagan rulers dictating how they ought to live. But we must realize that it is in the sojourning, it is in the pilgrimage, it is in the exile that we have an opportunity to see the gospel at work again. A few weeks ago, I quoted this same quote from Milton Vincent. He writes, More than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulation in thereby, in thereby positioning myself to gain full benefit from them. For the gospel is the one great permanent circumstance in which I live and move. Every hardship of my life is allowed by God only because it serves his gospel purpose in me. When I view my circumstance in this life, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes a genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good onto me by improving my character, by making me more conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, you and I live in exile. You and I live away from our true home. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Since we live in exile right now, we will live with our own Nebuchadnezzars, our own Cyruses, and if God so ordains with our own Antiochuses. But notice what Paul writes in these two verses. The Lord a title of authority and supremacy. Jesus, our adopted brother, who purchased our entrance into God's family with his own blood. Christ, the Greek translation of the Messiah, the anointed king of God. By the power. What kind of power? Well, power that transforms the lowly into the glorious. That, dear friends, is the power of resurrection. 
And that enables Jesus to do what? To subject all things to himself. To put all things under his feet. To reign over all of life. Any Antiochus and any Antichrist that arises will be subjugated and will only be given freedom and power to do what they will as far as is necessary to achieve God's purposes in his church and in his people. Let us not then reject trials. Let us not flee tribulation. Let us not shake our fist at God's providence. If we do, we will likely miss his gospel purposes. We will miss the opportunity to experience something in such a way that information about who God is and who we are and what the world is like can be drilled down into our hearts. We need to experience these things so that the information God wins can become the glorious and hopeful knowledge of faith. We prayed this earlier from 2 Corinthians. That though our hope, the actual emotion of hope, might be shaken, the assurity, the foundation of our hope is in Christ and cannot. So let us then use our trials, knowing that Jesus, God's Son, our Savior, has conquered Satan, sin, and death, knowing that he reigns. And let's heed his brother, or half-brother, James's exhortation in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that by the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lastly, let's consider what our job is. We need to know in the core of our being that our job is faithfulness. I don't know about you, but the biggest reason I struggle to be faithful is because I have the audacity to believe that this whole thing rests on my shoulders. It does not, and praise the Lord for that. I am not sovereign, he is. The victory depends on him and him alone. In fact, did you guys catch who the great conflict is between in Daniel 11? You see, there's all these little conflicts. Persians versus the Greeks, Greeks versus the Persians, the two generals fighting each other. All these little conflicts. But Daniel 10.1 says not a bunch of small to moderately sized conflicts did Daniel see. It says he saw one great conflict. It's not the king of the south versus the king of the north. It's that all kingdoms, all kings, who think themselves great and mighty, and even in some cases divine, set themselves against God. And so when we see our God challenged, when we see these kingdoms come against him, come against his people, what, pray tell, are his people doing? They're just trying to be faithful. In fact, they're usually not doing anything recorded in particular in our text. Look, for example, in 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul talks not about Antiochus, but about the Antichrist. He calls him the man of lawlessness. Here's what he says. 
Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. Wow, that sounds pretty bad. Uh, so this leader comes to power. Uh, he's a lawless guy. And he sits in God's temple and claims that he is God. Oh no, what should we all do? Verse 8. Then the lawlessness, the lawless one, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Oh, Jesus takes care of it. Don't worry, guys. Apparently by breathing on him. So Jesus has it handled. Okay, well, again, what then do we do? Verses 13 through verse 5 in the next chapter. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because you, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ and the God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What are we to do? To give thanks to accept the call of the gospel and to acknowledge that that's how we came. That we're to stand firm and hold to the traditions we have been taught. And that we are to let, notice that that's passive, but that we are to let God comfort us. Comfort our hearts and establish in them good works and a good word. We are to, prepare, we are to pray for our leaders that the word may go out from them as it does from us, and that the wicked will be restrained. You see, we will only truly know this and do this by the power of the gospel. The good news that the sovereign God has conquered sin, Satan, and death. That our enemies have been subjugated. And that Christ has risen. And when we know that, we, like Daniel, at the end of chapter 8, will do the simplest of things. We'll get up and we'll go to work. Let's pray.